Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books and Sports Podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and our guest today is Skip DeJardin, author of September 1918, War, Plague, and the World Series. Skip, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Bob. I'm happy to be here. Great. Skip has done it all in the media with uh, experience as a journalist, television anchor, producer, and programming executive. He's an executive at Google and is uh, involved in the Google Fiber and YouTube television projects. Skip, give us a little bit of um, background on your education and, uh, and other parts of your professional life and walk us through the various stages of your career, if you don't mind. Sure. I, uh, I'm a New England kid. Uh, well, I'm not a kid anymore, but I'm still from New England. Um, <laughs> I grew up in Maine and uh, went off to school at Notre Dame. Got a couple of degrees at Notre Dame, and it was there that I first got involved in sports and sports media, and it stuck. I've been doing it ever since. I'm over 35 years in the media at this point. I spent almost 10 years at ESPN in the programming department, and now I've got a chance to sort of reinvent television a little bit uh, with Google and with YouTube TV. Now, I know my daughter's thrilled with you with YouTube. Everybody's daughter loves YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that much I have definitely learned. We're uh, and what we do at YouTube TV is a little bit different than than the YouTube that your daughter may be watching. In that uh, YouTube TV is almost like your cable company. It's forty dollars a month, and you get the television channels that you're accustomed to getting on cable. You're just not wired to anything. You can t- get it on your devices or show it in your living room, and it's sort of giving you all the entertainment that you're looking for, but disconnecting you from that cable connection. That's not a bad thing. Well, let's talk about the book. Uh, would you say that you were uh, approaching this? Are you more of a sports fan or a history buff or a little bit of both? A little bit of both. Uh, I'm a lot of both, actually. Um, and I kind of approached this book um, with a, a throwback to my days at Notre Dame. I was an American studies major. And I looked at this subject from an American studies angle, and that is, let's look at the events that took place and try to put them in a larger context. What else was going on in the country? How did these events affect what uh, other things were going on? And and how do all the pieces fit together? And it happens that I stumbled upon a topic that had such far-reaching implications into so much of what was going on in the United States at that time. The more I researched, the more I marveled at uh, the connections that were taking place between Boston and Massachusetts and the rest of the world during September of 1918. Yeah, I didn't realize what an intriguing era that was. I mean, what particularly uh, intrigued you about? I mean, definitely there was the Boston connection with the with the World Series and the flu, and of course those uh, Massachusetts um, regiments that went overseas. Yeah, I I first came upon this in a kind of an odd way. I was uh, reading a novel by Dennis Lehane. Most people will know him as the guy who wrote Mystic River and Gone Baby Gone and Plum Island and books that have been turned into uh, very popular movies. 
he wrote a book called The Given Day, and it was a set in Boston in 1919. And it featured two characters that really caught my attention. One was Babe Ruth, who was an actual character in the novel. And I grew fascinated with 25-year-old Babe Ruth. Not fat, pigeon-toed, newsreel Babe Ruth that we've all been so familiar with over the years. You know, during my research, what really I came to appreciate was that Babe Ruth, at this time period, in his early 20s, was a tremendous athlete. He was Mike Trout today. Um, and Shohei Otani all thrown in together. Um, and that was not my impression of him because all of our footage of Babe Ruth um, is from later when he had gotten heavier and slower and didn't look at all like an athlete uh, as he sort of spun around the bases in fast motion from those old films. So that really intrigued me. And also... Another main character in the book is Calvin Coolidge, which brought me up short a little bit. To me, Calvin Coolidge is a Vermont person. Um, and I had really no idea that he had been governor of Massachusetts. That was a disconnect and caused me to sort of look at this a little more closely than I had. And then I had a family connection. The story in my family is that my great-grandmother... Uh, my great-grandfather, rather, um, had died of the Spanish flu shortly after my grandmother was born. And my great-grandmother was still alive when I was a youngster, and so I knew her very well. And when I started to put two and two together that, you know, this, this is the epidemic that killed her husband and killed my grandfather, my grandmother's father. And so suddenly it became really personal. And so those disparate pieces in my own head started to come together. And the early question that I was looking to answer before I even thought this might be a book was, why was the World Series being played in September? And why were people going to Fenway Park in Boston and cramming together into a ballpark? And those seats were no further apart then than they are now, <laughs> which is, if you've ever been to Fenway Park, uh, a, a, a little trip down memory lane because they are very crammed in together. And why would people have done that at exactly the time when being in a crowd, being shoulder to shoulder and sharing the air with other people could literally kill you? Oh, yeah. And... The more I researched it, the more fascinating the time period began. Became that's true. I didn't even think about the um, the crowds at a baseball game. I, mean, I knew I knew um, you know the people you had in the camps and everything were obviously you know infecting one another. And then when they went to other camps, certainly. Um, would you say that the United States in general was at a crossroads in September nineteen eighteen? It was. There were a lot of uh, societal things that were changing at that period of time in Massachusetts that were indicative of larger changes going on in other places, many of which echo through our world today. For instance, 1918 marked a, a, an inflection point in immigration in Massachusetts. Up until that point, uh, politics had been dominated by rock rib Yankee conservative Republicans like Calvin Coolidge, 
But the massive immigration, particularly from Ireland, was beginning to change those demographics. More and more people were living in the cities in Massachusetts, like the rest of the country. And more and more of them were traced their heritage in some points within months back to their homeland. And it was the 1918 election in which an Irish American Democrat first got elected to the Senate from Massachusetts, which was the first sign of these demographic and political changes. In addition, the war had a gigantic effect on everything that was going on in society. Part of that was a concerted effort to stifle, even criminalize dissent. It was illegal in the United States during this period of time to criticize the president or criticize the government, especially in newspapers. And newspaper editors could and did go to jail um, because freedom of speech was considered less important than the war effort writ large. And then another piece that was taking place at that time that echoes through today was the rise of women. The fact that most men in society were either overseas fighting or working in a job in a factory that was producing supplies for the war effort meant that women were getting out of the house, were taking over manufacturing jobs, were finding independence, And that translated into a push for more rights, including the right to vote. And a good portion of this book recounts the story of a woman from Boston who was leading the women's suffrage movement and bringing it to a vote in the United States Senate. So while there are examples of these things that were directly tied to Boston and to Massachusetts, they're clearly much bigger issues in the United States that were... uh, indications of the way society was changing. Very true. You had the four-minute speeches and, and those sort of things. And in the book, and the beginning of the book anyway, you, you heavily weighted with baseball and uh, the worker fight edict that they were facing. And, and uh, it seemed to me that, that baseball was almost like teetering on the brink because they didn't know, first of all, how long the war was going to last. And 1919 was kind of shaky. How uh, It absolutely Absolutely was, yeah. The, I, the general consensus around baseball was that when the 1918 season ended, uh, baseball would shut down for as long as the war lasted. There had been a major move in 1917 to shut baseball down until the war ended. It never quite took hold because at one point President Wilson said that America needed baseball for morale. Mm-hmm. But in 1918, when the government was desperate for men to fill the fighting forces. Keep in mind that when Wilson declared war in 1917, we didn't really have a standing army in the United States. We had state militias, but not a a unified American army that we could suddenly send into battle. Yeah. So in May of 1918, the government issued the worker fight order that you referred to, which basically said everybody between the ages of 18 and 30 had three choices, make themselves available for the draft, enlist, or get a job in a industry directly related to the war effort. 
baseball didn't seem to fit that. Now, there had been exceptions for, for instance, theaters, where the government considered that to be an important morale boost and an and a entertainment to be a good distraction uh, for the public that was still here stateside. But baseball had not been specifically included there. So the owners of baseball teams went to Washington to say, hey, what about us? Do we have to shut down? Uh, can we continue to play? And after some discussion, there was a compromise reached that allowed baseball's regular season to continue, but only until Labor Day, at which point all but the two teams playing in the World Series would be disbanded and the players would be subject to the worker fight rule. So they had to either enlist or uh, be drafted or be working uh, in some direct war capacity. And the two teams, which turned out to be the Red Sox from the American League and the Chicago Cubs from the National League, were given two weeks to play the World Series and wrap it up, at the end of which even they were then subject to this rule. And no one knew if baseball would come back after the war. And as you said earlier, you know, Babe Ruth is, um, none of us really envisioned him as a Red Sox pitcher and an emerging slugger. I mean, he was beginning to emerge as, as a huge star. But even then, he was like going up against authority. So what about that dynamic between himself and Ed Barrow, his manager? I mean, they, they really tussled. They absolutely did. And, and Barrow was the oldest of old school baseball men, even 100 years ago. Uh, and so he had Ruth, who was, uh, by the middle of that summer, the best pitcher the Red Sox had. Dutch Leonard, who had been the ace of the staff, uh, basically said, I'm not waiting around to find out whether or not baseball uh, is going to be exempt and whether or not I may get caught up in the draft. So uh, in late June, he left the team and began to pitch uh, on the company baseball team of a giant shipbuilding factory outside of Boston, where presumably he had some war-related job, but mostly he was pitching for the company team. Yeah. Um, and so now the Red Sox were short of pitching, and Ruth was agitating to both hit and pitch because he was such a powerful hitter on the days that he pitched. Harry Hooper, who was the veteran center fielder for the Red Sox, basically went to Barrow and said, look, do you want this kid sitting around three out of every four days with nothing to do? That sounds like trouble. He's one of the best hitters we have on the team, and you're not using him. And Barrow rejected it out of hand. Absolutely not. I'd be the laughingstock of baseball if I ever let my best pitcher become a hitter. But he was hitting so well, and the team's roster was so depleted by players going off to war that in early May, he finally gave in and said, all right, fine, we'll try it. But I guarantee you this guy's going to come crawling back to me, begging to be nothing but a pitcher because this isn't sustainable. He's going to fall flat on his face. Oh, yeah. It didn't work out that way. Right, and Hooper even said that in the glory of their times. He said that to Lawrence Ritter. You know, I'm the guy that went to the manager and said that. Um, he, go ahead. Yeah, he did, and but it was it was partly about baseball, and it was partly about the fact that 24-year-old Babe Ruth was just a giant bundle of energy who couldn't contain himself sitting there waiting for his turn in the rotation. Right. You know, and then Barrow in the World Series basically sort of thumbed his nose at Ruth and sat him down when on days he wasn't pitching. 
I mean, yeah, the whole pitching versus hitting thing came to a head for the first time in July. Ruth played in the field for the first time on May 6th. Uh, By the end of June, uh, he had 10 home runs when the American League record at the time for home runs in a season was 16. Uh, They were nowhere near halfway through the season, and he was closing in on that record. But he was finding excuses not to pitch. Oh, my left wrist hurts. Not enough to keep me from hitting, just enough to keep me from pitching. Because he was loving playing in the field. Uh, and as uh, Barrow pointed out, he was down to a three-man rotation. And he needed Ruth badly. And it all blew up on the road in, in early, in the first couple of days of July. Ruth left the team for a couple of days and finally came back with his tail between his legs and pitched a little bit more in the second half of the season. But he and Barrow never totally patched things up. And when the World Series came, Ruth played on the days he pitched and did not play on the days that he didn't. You know, um, in reading your your narrative about the World Series, one of the more fascinating and thing, uh, episodes and something I didn't realize was um, the questionable play of Max Flack. I mean, he made some errors and got picked off twice in the same game. And, you know, there were rumors that there was gambling or was this just bad luck or was there something more sinister going on in, with, with Max Flack that you could tell? There were a couple of strange things in this World Series. And keep in mind, this is a year before the 1919 Black Sox scandal. And a book was written a few years ago because someone unearthed uh, a deposition that Eddie Seacott gave post-1919 in which he casually mentioned, you know, this, this whole thing was not that unusual. We all know that the there were people on the Cubs who took money to throw the world series the year before. So we figured it was no big deal. Um, and if that were true, uh, a couple of factors have to be considered one Boston and specifically Fenway park were the absolute epicenter of gambling in baseball. And that only got worse during the war because, uh, baseball was all that was left to bet on, on a daily basis all the horses had been drafted, essentially, and were, like the men in society, contributing to the war effort. There were none left around to race. So gamblers were betting on virtually everything. Is the next pitch going to be a ball or a strike? I mean, you could wager on anything out in the open at Fenway Park. Sport Sullivan was the big gambling uh, guy in Boston. He was instrumental in the 1919 World Series fix. So a lot of those elements were there. Uh, But you're right. Max Flack is the guy that everybody points to. He is a respected, veteran, capable, smart player. And all of a sudden, in this World Series, he sort of falls apart. Um, And it all begins for Flack suspiciously after a the two teams start to dispute with the owners about their pay and what they're going to get for playing in the World Series. And it begins once they get back to Boston and and that uh, dispute starts to boil over. In game four, as you said, Max Flack gets picked off twice in the same game. In the hundred years since, no player's been picked off twice in a World Series game. To this day, it, Max Flack is the only guy it ever happened to. But 
In addition in that game, Ruth came up to uh, to bat, and the Cubs pitcher, Lefty Tyler, turned to Flack, who played right field, and said, you know, back up. You know, this is Babe Ruth. We all know what he can do. Back up. And Flack just stood there. Well, inevitably, a couple of pitches later, Ruth hit the ball right over Flack's head into the right field corner, driving in the winning, what eventually would be the winning runs for Boston. So in a single game, two pickoffs and a horrible, dumb play in right field by a guy who was not dumb. And then in the final game, in game six, um, the winning run in a two-to-one game, the winning run scored when what seemed to be a fairly easy line drive was hit to Flack in right field, and it clanked off his glove, and it rolled around in the field before he finally picked it up, and the again, the eventual winning run scored. He kind of brushed it off afterwards and, and said, you know, hey, uh, everybody makes mistakes. Looks like I'm going to be the GOAT for this series. Right. No one ever proved that he took any money, but if you wanted to look at someone who played a significant role in in the Cubs losing that series, it sure would be Max Flack. Right. On the other hand, the the more interesting to me game in that World Series was Game Five, and and we could talk if you want about, about the the strike that took place before that game as players were really upset about the pay that they were that getting. That was my next question. But, so go on to it. Okay, so we'll, we'll get we'll get to get there in a second. Uh, and so in the uh, locker room before that game, uh, Harry Hooper addressed both teams and said, if the Red Sox win today, we'll never be able to collect our money. The series will be over, and we'll just have to accept whatever the owners give us. And lo and behold, the Red Sox played the most lackluster game of the entire series. They scored no runs. They barely got players on base. That seems to me a far more damning example of evidence oh, that yeah. somebody may have thrown a game than the boneheaded plays that Max Flack had. Oh, yeah, that's collusion at its height. You would think. Yeah, they were definitely um, definitely angry, and they can How close did they come to actually boycotting that uh, the World Series? Well, it's it's an interesting story. The year before, um, the two teams had had a certain level of payout that was roughly two thousand dollars for the winner, a thousand dollars for the loser. Um, and when the Red Sox and the Cubs got their paperwork from the baseball commission. They kind of scanned it pretty quickly and saw those numbers, 2,000, 1,000, and assumed that that meant that they were going to get at least a minimum of that amount that the teams had gotten the year before. What they didn't notice was that for the first time ever, there was a new clause that said the second, third, and fourth place teams in each league were also going to get money for the first time. And that 2,000 and $1,000 was not a floor. It was a cap. Um, and so after the first two games of the World Series, uh, first three games of the World Series in Chicago, uh, the teams, because of the war, rode the same train back to Boston. That was very unusual. And that's when the grumbling about money really began. The Cubs discovered 
that the Red Sox players were still getting paid their regular season paychecks all the way until September 15th. The Cubs weren't. They were totally reliant on the World Series share. So they put up a stink and and forced uh, Charlie Wiegman, the, the owner of the Cubs, to agree that he'd pay them as well till the 15th. That put them in a sour mood. And then Hooper, again, took a closer look at the paperwork and realized that the 2,000 and 1,000 figures were a cap. And then he started to add up the ticket sales and revenue from the first three games in Chicago and realized that even if Fenway Park sold out for game four, and remember that then, as now, the player's share of World Series money comes from just the first four games so that no players will be tempted to try to stretch the World Series out to more games. Uh, even if Fenway Park sold out, they weren't going to get anywhere close to 2000 or $1,000. So they tried to talk to the commission members on the train. They were promised they could have a meeting as soon as the train got back to Boston. They showed up at the hotel to talk to the commission, and the commission stiffed them. They didn't show up. When they finally reached the commission on the phone, they were told, well, we can't really talk to you about money until we really know what the ticket sales are for game four. So after game four, the players went back to the commission and said, okay, now let's talk about money. And again, the commissioners would not speak to them. So on the day of game five, after the two teams had been meeting together and having angry phone calls back and forth with the commission, they decided we're just not going to play today until we until we settle this. The game was scheduled for 2.30 in the afternoon, and the commission members didn't show up till about 10 minutes before game time. None of the players were on the field. They weren't even in uniform. The people in the stands were, knew something was up, but they didn't know what because there was no public address system. They really didn't know what was going on. They just knew there was not going to be baseball starting at 2.30. And so a meeting was hastily called under the stands at Fenway Park, and two of the three National Commission members were so drunk right. they could barely stand up. <laughs> I remember reading that. That was funny. Not to, and not to the players. Not to the players, no, because they, this was their one chance to kind of settle this. And Harry Hooper was trying to have a logical, measured conversation about why the players believed that this new, if nothing else, this new rule about giving money to the second, third, and fourth place teams should be put off for a year. Or put off until after the war, since baseball, everyone knew, was going to shut down. And finally, in his frustration, he turned to the members of the press that were there, and he said, as you can see, there's nobody here for us to talk to. Because there's nobody here who can talk. <laughs> ben Johnson, the legendary president of the American League, was a blubbering mess. He was trying to beg Hooper to play, and he was crying and alternately pounding his chest that I'm the only one who saved baseball from being shut down last year and earlier this year, and you got to do this for me. And it was just a mess. That's when Hooper gave his speech to the two teams to say, if the Red Sox win today, the series is over and we'll have no recourse. As it turned out, they lost, but overnight they decided – we really don't have a leg to stand on here. The owners are not going to budge. The public is very much against us. The idea that baseball players would be fighting over $1,000 or $2,000 when $1,000 was a year's pay for the average factory worker in Boston right? meant that there was no sympathy whatsoever in the public. 
And so they reluctantly agreed to play game six. The Red Sox actually took their World Series champion photo before the game. (laughs) Which may, in retrospect, have seemed a little suspicious as well. Um, And they won. And when the final out was recorded, there were no wild celebration on the field. The players weren't jumping up and down. The fans weren't going crazy. They just sort of filed out of Fenway Park. The players kind of wandered to the locker rooms. My friend Gordon Eads of the Boston Red Sox calls it the most joyless World Series win in history. Well, they had to wait 86 years for another one, so maybe they shouldn't have that. that, uh... Exactly. Little did they know it would be 86 before they won another one, and 95 before they won one at Fenway Park. That's right. Well, baseball was certainly a a big deal in the first part of the month, but a more serious um, subject was the the Spanish influenza epidemic, much bigger and much more tragic. Um, Talk about that flu and and how it really impacted the area, Massachusetts, Boston. It was just so many deaths in such a little bit of time. Yeah, we, we if you look at it on the calendar, you might be fooled into thinking that just as the World Series ended, the, the flu epidemic really uh, began. But it had been going on throughout the first two weeks of September. Uh, the first cases were actually reported in the last couple of days of August at Commonwealth Pier in the Chelsea Naval Yards in, in on the Boston Harbor. And Almost simultaneously at Camp Devens, the army installation west of Boston, undoubtedly spread by uh, military people moving back and forth between those two facilities. And then quickly uh, into the civilian population, because it may seem odd to us now, but at the time, those installations were fairly open to the public. You could come and go. Certainly people who worked there, civilian people who worked there, and there were a lot of them, came and went every day. And so the the intermingling between soldiers, sailors, and civilians was widespread. What happened was that in those first two weeks, as the epidemic was getting started and as people were coming down with the flu, no one talked about it. We talked a little bit earlier about the fact that it was illegal in the United States to do or print anything that might adversely affect the morale, either of troops or of civilians. And so newspaper editors were frightened to print anything about an epidemic. I mean, what could possibly be worse for morale than to tell people that hundreds and thousands of their fellow citizens were dropping dead? (laughs) True. And there were not very good decisions made as a result. The military and the government was talking to each other a little bit, but no one was talking to civilians, and everyone was blinded by their war and patriotic fervor. So they did about everything wrong you could do wrong. Over the course of September, there were four separate giant parades in Boston, starting with Labor Day, when Thousands of people crammed the streets and thousands of factory workers or troops marched in the streets, breathing in and out, coughing on each other, just creating this soup of germs above everybody's head. And even when it became clear that 
influenza was killing people, they didn't cancel the parades. They were thought to be great for morale or great to drive the financial uh, collections for what was known as the liberty loans in which uh, people were buying bonds and buying stamps to fund the war. Uh, And on September 14th, just three days after the World Series ended, at Camp Devens in Ayer, Massachusetts, the new commander there decided that it was time the public got to see what their money was going for. And he threw open the gates of the camp and said, come on in, there's going to be a gigantic uh, (laughs) parade ground uh, assembly, and you'll see the entire Pilgrim Division, which is training here at this camp, and they'll do calisthenics, and they'll march in formation, and the bands will play, and you'll get to see your husbands and your fathers and your sons and your uncles uh, right here in the camp. Well, at the time, there were thousands and thousands of people sick with Spanish flu in Camp Devens, but they weren't telling the public that, and they invited them all in. And when the day was over, those people went home and took the germs with them. And some of them brought more germs in, and there were 500 people in the Camp Devens hospital when that day began, which was a Saturday. Uh, By Monday, there were over 3,000 soldiers in the Camp Devens hospital. Those statistics. It just exploded. I know those statistics are staggering. I mean, you you recounted where there were 600 flu-related deaths in Boston over a 10-day period and like 109 on September 24th by itself. And there were 6,000 cases in Salem and 10,000 cases in Lynn. I mean, how how is this flu so much more deadly than the other viruses? You know, you think flu is, you know, it's it's annoying, but it's not fatal or at least now. Well, I know we think that, don't we? Yeah. But to this day, Flu is, every year, flu is either the fourth or fifth biggest killer of people in the world. Now, it's usually very old people or very young people. They get the flu, it develops into pneumonia, and eventually it kills them. This was a little bit different because it primarily struck the youngest, healthiest adults. The the germ had mutated, as it still does today, Every year we get a flu shot and, you know, we, we cross our fingers and we hear that, well, let's hope this year's flu shot is effective. Let's, let's hope they've picked the right combination of germs to fight this year. And some years it works better than others because every year the flu mutates. And this particular mutation caused the immune system of the people it infected to go into overdrive. If you didn't have a very good immune system, like small children or old people, You got sick, you got very sick, but then you recovered. If you were a healthy person, your immune system was in great shape. And so it started to pump out antibodies and it started to pump out white blood cells and it started to overwhelm this infection. And the more it pumped out those antibodies, the more the infection grew and the more these people's lungs filled. It would happen very quickly. People would come down with... uh, the flu on a Friday morning and be dead by Saturday afternoon. There's a story of a priest in, uh, in the Boston area who said mass in the morning, wasn't feeling well late in the morning and was dead by nighttime. It, to, for a little bit of perspective, 
last year in the state of Massachusetts in what was considered to be a pretty bad flu season. From October to March, six months, 5,700 people caught the flu. In the third week of September, 1918, in just Boston, not the whole state, 85,000 people had the flu. Like 15 times as many people as the entire state in a whole year this year. At the height of the Spanish flu in Boston, one person was dying every nine minutes. And it totally overwhelmed the infrastructure. First of all, most of the doctors in America were gone. They were either overseas tending to the troops or they were at military facilities. What was left in society was older doctors who were retired, who were kind of your neighborhood guy who'd come to your house. Most of them had not gone to med school because at that point in time, you could just call yourself a doctor. You didn't have to go to med school. And so the country was really unprepared. The huge heroes of the Spanish flu epidemic were nurses. They were few and far between, and people with very little training got pressed into being nurses. But, you know, we talked at the top of the podcast about the rise of women in society, and this is perhaps where they shone the most. They stepped up in a very big way, and teachers volunteered to be nurses. Girl Scouts volunteered to be nurses from every corner, not just of New England, but the rest of America as the flu spread. These are the people who stepped up and saved the day. You know, um, one curious part of the uh, flu story was the, to me anyway, the actions of the governor, Samuel McCall. I mean, there's a big flu epidemic going on in the state, and he's, he's gallivanting around in Canada. I mean, why didn't he come back to the state? Well, he was a lame duck to begin with. Now, keep in mind, it's late September, and, and there's a new election for a new governor in November. He's mm -hmm. not running, so he doesn't have much on the line. But you're right. He was just in Canada, and he was connected by phone, but he kept saying, seems like you guys got everything handled. You don't really need me. If you do, call me back. <laughs> he didn't want the flu. He didn't want the flu, and he didn't want the responsibility. Um, that left the administration of government during the greatest public health crisis the country has ever known, in the hands of this little-known political functionary named Calvin Coolidge. Coolidge was the lieutenant governor, and in the governor's absence, he was in charge. It took him a while. Coolidge never moved very quickly at anything. That's true. And in this case, he didn't either. Uh, but by the time he did move, he made the right moves. Unfortunately, he didn't spring into action until like the 24th or 25th of the month. And by the 30th, the epidemic was nearly over. It had begun and ended in this 30-day period. And the reason it disappeared as quickly as it began was that virtually every person in Massachusetts had already been infected. There was no one left to catch the flu. <laughs> When we were kids, we all sort of did that science experiment where you lit a candle and then you put a jar over it upside down. And very quickly, the candle went out because it had burnt up all the oxygen inside the jar. That's what happened to Spanish flu. It ran out of fuel. You know, um, Coolidge was a guy that 
for his for his uh, perspective stuck to policy rather than politics, or at least that's how it seemed. And, and you know, it seemed strange then, and it probably seems strange now. Um, how different was Coolidge from other politicians of his day, other than being very quiet? He certainly was different than the other Massachusetts politicians of his day, and totally different than today's politicians. He, for the most part, didn't campaign. He believed that people know me. And they know enough about me to make their own decisions. And if I have to campaign to convince them, then I'm probably not the right guy for the job. They should make their decision about me just based on what they already know. So he was not a campaigner. It also may have been a practical matter because he wasn't very good with people. He was uncomfortable in a one-on-one setting. He didn't have much of a personality. By all accounts, he was a very good public speaker where he didn't have to connect one-on-one, but he just wasn't all that comfortable. He was not a glad hander or a backslapper. In contrast to the other Massachusetts politician who plays a pretty prominent role in the book, Henry Cabot Lodge, who was the legendary senator and the leader of the Republican Party, who was an absolute people politician. Uh, and also incredibly shrewd and in, in incredibly Machiavellian and uh, at the same time a back slapper and a backstabber. Oh, that's a perfect description. So um, they were very stark contrast to each other. Both Republicans, both from Massachusetts, but totally different styles. The irony was that Henry Cabot Lodge wanted to be president so badly he could taste it. And it was Coolidge who ended up with the job. And that's true. You know, and then Henry Cabot Lodge had those uh, great battles with uh, Woodrow Wilson. And Wilson, of course, is a very interesting president during that era. And, you know, he was a very dominant politician. I mean, what about his strengths and his weaknesses as, as president? I mean, there was the women's suffrage. There was he didn't want to go to war, but then he eventually had to go to war. So how does he fit yep. the, the whole dynamic? Wilson was full of contrasts like that. Um, n- n- as you said, not a politician originally. He he was the president of Princeton University, and then just two years as the governor of New Jersey before he became president, so very little political experience. And it, it hurt him when he got to Washington because he didn't really know how to build coalitions, how to how to bully his party when he needed to, how to cajole the other party when he needed to. Part of the reason that society was so focused on the war effort and so uh, bent on keeping up morale at all times was it Wilson had run for re-election in 1916 on a slogan that he kept us out of war and won. So clearly the majority of the people in the United States didn't want the United States to be involved in World War I. He was inaugurated for a second term at the beginning of March and six weeks later asked Congress to declare war. So now he had to turn the country that he had pushed into an anti-war stance completely the other way, into a pro-war stance. We talked about how the fact there was no standing army, there were also no materials to support an army. We didn't have enough ships in the Navy, we didn't have enough rifles, we didn't have enough trucks, we didn't have enough artillery, we didn't have enough bullets or guns. And so he had to spin up this giant war machine in support of this effort, which is why 
war was declared by the United States in April of 1917. And in September of 1918, the first American, all-American battle takes place. That's a long period of time when you think about it in retrospect. But it took us that long to get ready. The great irony of the Lodge versus Wilson battle was that Lodge had spent the previous four or five years agitating for war, what he called war preparedness. Um, he was the early proponent of what Ronald Reagan used to say, which was, you know, the best defense is a good offense, or the best offense is a good defense, and that the two went hand in hand. Lodge strongly believed that we needed to be ready in case war broke out and we weren't, and that a strong country doesn't get attacked. And so after five years of saying, we need to go to war, we need to go to war, we need to go to war, Wilson said, okay, we're going to war. And now Lodge was a little bit stuck. How to still be the opposition, how to still not give an inch to a Democratic president when you're the leader of the Republicans, who's just handed you your biggest issue and taken your side. And so Lodge in the long run decided that what he'd do was not criticize the fact that we were in the war, but take every opportunity to criticize the way Wilson was running the war. And the two went at it all the time. They were on opposite sides of virtually every issue, including the women's suffrage issue. And then later, famously, after the war, it was Lodge who killed Wilson's dream of a League of Nations. Well, let's talk about Wilson's influence in getting women's suffrage, um, helping that out. I mean, he seemed to be sitting on the fence early on and then, you know, he was met with some women's leaders and then seemed to, you know, lean that way. Yeah. Women's suffrage was an interesting issue looked at through the perspective of politics today in that it was an absolute nonpartisan issue. Lots of Republicans and lots of Democrats were in favor of giving women the right to vote. Lots of Republicans and lots of Democrats were absolutely opposed to giving women the right to vote. So getting the 19th Amendment to the Constitution passed was not a party battle. Wilson could twist some arms for reluctant Democrats, but it was not like his party was a favor and Lodge's party was opposed, even though personally they were on opposite sides of that issue. The hero of the women's suffrage movement, in keeping with the theme of the of the book, was Maud Wood Park, who was a woman from Boston. As we talked about, virtually everything that was going on in the United States was related somehow to Boston and Massachusetts. She had grown up there. She had gone off to what we would sort of have referred to in the 50s and 60s as finishing schools, the places that taught fine young ladies to be perfect housewives and homemakers and to know their place. It didn't take. <laughs> she, uh, she took a different path in her life. And um, after college, joined uh, the women's movement, but found the movement incredibly disappointing. Susan B. Anthony had been fighting for women's right to vote for almost 50 years at that point. And Maud Wood Park found that the leaders 
of the women's movement were all in their 70s and 80s and not taking the issues very seriously anymore. It had become a social reason to meet and get together. She was aghast when she got to the national convention of the women's movement and each of the state chairpersons read their report and one of theirs read their entire report in rhyme. It, I, I referred to it in the book as the movement was no longer moving. And Maud Wood Park decided she was going to change that. She went back to Boston. She decided she'd start her own organizations. She wouldn't rely on the national infrastructure of women's groups. And one by one, she started to build these societies and organizations in Boston on a wide variety of issues, from poverty to literacy to uh, birth control to the right to vote. She became the best organizer of crowds, of uh, volunteers, and of political pressure. And then the remaining leaders of the women's movement asked her to move to Washington and become a full-time lobbyist, which is what she did. She left Boston, she went to Washington, and she set about trying to get the 19th Amendment ratified and learned on the job how to be a lobbyist. It was, as you can imagine, really hard for women to sway politics when they couldn't vote. So their job was always to convince men. And she was masterful at that. And she, late in September as she was vote counting. Uh, the 19th Amendment had passed the House by the, the two-thirds majority. It now needed to pass the Senate by a two-thirds majority. And all through the summer, she was, who was in town, who was not in town? Did they have enough votes? Lodge was doing exactly the same thing on the opposite side, her own home state senator. And they were each looking for the day when they could bring this issue up, when they might have a slight advantage. She wasn't getting the 66 votes she needed. She was about two votes short. She went to Wilson and said, Congress is going to end its session. When it does, this amendment goes away. And when the new Congress is elected, we'll have to start all over from scratch and pass the House and bring it to the Senate. I need you to find me two votes. And she persuaded Wilson to go up to Capitol Hill and personally appeal for the right for women to vote. We all watch TV several times a year, and we see the president go address a joint session of Congress, and he, he stands in the House of Representatives and he speaks. This is not what Wilson did. He didn't call up ahead of time and ask for everyone to assemble. He went up Pennsylvania Avenue and walked into the Capitol and walked onto the floor of the Senate and asked to be recognized. It was unheard of. And did not sit well with a lot of the senators, this breach of protocol. But he was recognized, and he rose to speak, and he gave a very impassioned speech about women's role in society. And in keeping with everything else that was going on in September 1918, couched it in terms of the war effort. And he talked about how women had stepped up in society during the war, how they had taken their rightful place, how once the war was over, whenever it was over, they were going to be needed to help rebuild our country and rebuild the world, and that they had earned that right, and that the Senate should give it to them. It was one of his finest speeches. 
the vote was taken and Maudwood Park still came up two votes short. <laughs> you know. Uh, and it, so it was not until the next session of Congress that she finally got enough votes. The epilogue to that story, which doesn't happen in September of 1918, but which I do talk about in the back of the book, was they, she decided that if we can't persuade enough senators to vote, then we just need to go get different senators. She chose one Republican and one Democrat and decided to focus all of the women's movement attention at getting those two senators defeated and replaced with a senator who would vote in their favor and therefore give them the two votes they needed. One of the senators she picked to target was the other senator from Massachusetts, John Weeks, also a Republican, who was that fall facing voters for the first time because he'd been the last senator from Massachusetts before the 17th Amendment, who he was chosen by the state legislature, not by voters. And he had gone very publicly on the record saying, I don't care if every single person in the state of Massachusetts is in favor of women getting the right to vote. I will never vote for it. The campaign that Maudwood Park organized between the, big, the end of September and election day at the early November, just five or six weeks, drove John Weeks from that seat and elected David Walsh, who we mentioned earlier was the first Irish-American Democrat elected to the Senate from Massachusetts. Politics at its best. Um, yes. World War One, of course, was a, was a huge subject. And then, as you said earlier, it took a while for the Americans to, to mobilize to actually get over there. Um, how did their entrance into the war eventually tip the balance toward the, uh, toward the Allies? Fresh troops, fresh uh, munitions, that sort of thing. Yeah. So... Um, as I said, there was no standing army, but there were state militias. And one of the first units, because it was already organized and had been drilling on a semi-regular basis and was somewhat equipped to fight, was the 26th Infantry, the Yankee Division, it came to be called, because it was made up of Massachusetts militia members, for the most part. There were a few people in there from Rhode Island or Connecticut or Maine, but it was almost uh, largely Massachusetts men. They were among the first units to go over. And they had spent a year or so fighting under a British general or a French general and kind of being moved around and and used where they were needed. And they had seen very tough fighting over the course of that year and had suffered greatly in gas attacks as well, which was sort of the, the hallmark that we remember of World War One: trenches and gas attacks. Um, but in early September, General Blackjack Pershing was put in charge of American troops and insisted to the Allies that he was going to take these far-blown units, bring them all together in a single American army, bring over the fresh troops that had been trained up in the United States, and fight as one army. The French commander of the Allies didn't like that and said, listen, you'll do what I tell you. And Pershing said, I will fight where you tell me, but I will only fight as an American army. There was a little piece of land in France uh, at a town called Samuel that France and Germany had been fighting over for four years. Pushing back and forth, France had been trying to take this little triangle of land for four years and hadn't been able to take it. So I imagine that the general said to himself, well, I'll fix Pershing. You want to fight as an American unit? Here's the piece of land I want you to take, the one that I haven't been able to take myself for four years. 
So on September uh, 12th, the day after the Red Sox won the World Series, Pershing and his American army entered into battle to try to take this triangle of land from the Germans. The key unit in that battle was the Yankee Division, the 26th Infantry. They were sent in from the left side of the triangle, the 1st American Division, later became the Big Red One, uh, came in from the right side. And their goal was, over the course of two or three days, to meet at a central point behind German lines and basically surround the Germans that were in this area. The 26th did so well that they reached that point by nightfall of the first day. And Pershing decided to roll the dice and have them push on even further. They won this great battle that the French had not been able to win for four years. They took very heavy losses. But it was, from a morale standpoint, the last straw for Germany. They had been in this war of attrition with France and Britain for all these years, and they were worn out, and their ranks were thinned, and all of a sudden, there was a brand new army engaged with over a million men who were fresh and not worn out and were well-equipped and had proven in the very first battle that they could almost walk through these depleted German troops at will. And it crushed the morale of the German troops. It crushed the morale of the German command. And by the end of September, there was already talk just two weeks after this battle of the Germans suing for peace. And so, once again, in September of 1918, on the big stage in, in the largest event in the world, it was Massachusetts men that were uh, at the forefront. You know, uh, one of the more interesting stories also was the uh, the flying ace, David Putnam. Now, I've heard of Eddie Rickenbacker, but I never really knew a whole lot about Putnam. I mean, he was uh, quite a young guy, too, and, and achieved an awful lot. Yeah, so... So David Putnam was uh, from Newton, Massachusetts, a high school athlete, uh, well-known in the area, went off to Harvard, did very well at Harvard. But early on in the war, long before the United States had entered the war, he, like so many young men in America, decided that he needed to play a part. He had a patriotic duty. He owed it to the world to, to play his role. And he boarded a cattle boat because... One of the ways that we were keeping troops fed was shipping cows across the ocean uh, to make into to meat on the other side. He jumped on a cattle boat. He at first uh, volunteered for an ambulance corps, just trying to find any way to contribute, and then found himself with what became known as the Lafayette Escadrille, which was a group of French commanders and French airplanes, but all American pilots. It was a group founded by another Massachusetts guy from Pride's Corner, Massachusetts. And David Putnam took to airplanes. He had uh, the hand-eye coordination of an athlete and was absolutely fearless. We all grew up reading Peanuts, and Snoopy was the World War I flying ace battling the Red Baron. And ace was an actual title. It was a new title because airplanes were new. Um, this is just 15 years after the Wright brothers. Um, but the title of ace was bestowed upon a flyer once he shot down his fifth enemy plane. 
well, there was a day when David Putnam shot down five in a day. And so he had more kills, so to speak, than any other American pilot. And so he had the title of Ace of Aces, the top pilot in the whole war, and therefore was sort of famous in America. People read about his exploits in newspapers all around the country. And on September 12th, in providing air cover uh, for this battle that the Yankee division was fighting on the ground, uh, his luck finally ran out. And he was typically fighting uh, what was known as a circus, which was a group of German airplanes. Um, and he was taking them all on single-handedly. He was shot twice through the heart and died before his plane even reached the ground. And so the title of Ace of Aces passed on to a different pilot because you can only be the ace while you're alive. And David Putnam was now dead at the age of 19. It's amazing. And the, the reason we all know about Eddie Rickenbacker, uh, who spoke at length about David Putnam in his own biography and other writings, and Rickenbacker became a famous race car driver and the head of Eastern Airlines and a, a well-known pilot and businessman. The reason we all have heard of him is because he lived. And so many of these pilots who were just as talented and in some ways perhaps more talented didn't. And David Putnam was one of those. Well, obviously, your book had a lot of research involved. Uh, what was the most challenging part of your research? I, you know what? I, I'm going to answer that in a different way. The surprisingly uh, easier part of the research, and I, I will give a tiny plug here for my company, um, is a service known as Google Books. Um, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of books that are now out of print and may exist in just one library in the country, but they've all been scanned and you can go and read them online and you can read every page. And so, whereas 10 years ago, if I'd tried to write this book, I would have had to first out find that these books existed and then go somewhere in the country where they were sitting in a library, either Michigan or Oklahoma or California or wherever. This time I could sit at home and do a lot of this research right on my computer with the original sources between looking at the Boston newspapers, and there were eight daily newspapers in Boston in September 1918, and looking at all these history books. Almost every regiment of World War I, when they got home, wrote a book about their exploits. And it was published locally, and there may have been a 100 copies that the guys themselves bought or or their family members, and there was a, an, an edition put in the local library. You couldn't gather all those books up, but you can online. And they sit there waiting on Google Books for historians to come and read. Beats going in a dusty, dusty shelves, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I'm, look, I spent my share of time in dusty shelves as well, <laughs> but uh, not as much as I would have. Right. What did you learn that surprised you the most while you did all this research? What really shook you and you went, wow? I, I think it was the wide cast of characters that all uh, were involved in the 
great issues of the day all in this 30-day period. You know, we haven't even talked about some of the other people who show up in the book. There's a section about the poet E.E. E. Cummings, right. who was a soldier stationed at Camp Devens, where thousands of soldiers were dying. And he was right in the middle of that. There's a section in the book about a kid from Cambridge, Massachusetts, who goes off to play football at Notre Dame, uh, which has a I have a soft spot for being an, an alumnus. And he shows up on the first day of football practice to find out that there's a brand new coach. And on the first day of practice, not enough players show up in order to have a scrimmage. There's less than 22 guys, so you can't even play against each other. And that first day, first time coach is Newt Rockney. And the player? And, and, and the player, Charlie Crowley, has, who's a five foot 10, 175 pound offensive lineman, has two guys in the backfield running behind him, and they are George Gipp and Curly Lambeau. And so these stories keep popping up, and these famous people keep making cameos in this one-month period. I have a whole story in the book about John Singer Sargent, the famous painter who uh, who painted uh, so many of the murals at the Boston Public Library and helped Isabella Stewart Gardner build her collection at her museum in Boston and was a native of Gloucester, Massachusetts. And he was at the front, not far from the Yankee division, looking for a subject matter to paint because he'd gotten a commission from the British government. And while he's there, he catches the flu. And every time I opened another book or looked at another newspaper, these larger than life characters popped up and, and had a story to tell me about what was going on in September 1918. I was going to say, this is the part of the interview where I ask you what I missed, but you've been so thorough. Um, um, what? I've, I've, I've lived with this book now for seven years. Did, from start to finish, how long um, did it take you to do this? Yeah. My, I began my research in, in 2011. Uh, I wrote most of the book on airplanes and in hotel rooms in my spare time from my full-time mm -hmm. job. Um, and have finished and finished the manuscript about a year and a half ago. And we've been just been holding it, waiting for the hundredth anniversary of these events to publish the book. What, uh, what lessons do you want to, do you want readers of this book to take from, from September, 1918, whether, whether they're history fans or baseball fans or whatever. Yeah, I, I think the biggest lesson to be learned and the the thing I fear the most having come out of this experience is that an epidemic like Spanish flu could arise again. And that in some ways we are just as unprepared as we were then. You know, we had the big Ebola scare in the United States a, a year or two ago. And had that broken out here, would we have been better off than we were 100 years ago? Science is far advanced. We tend to think that medicine is far advanced, but these forces are stronger than we expect. The great irony, I suppose, of the Spanish flu is that the best doctors in America knew something was coming. And their greatest fear was an epidemic that would start in the closed quarters of military installations and then spread to the civilian population. In fact, the single best immunologist, the leading expert in the United States on communicable diseases, 
was stationed at the Chelsea Naval Hospital and saw Spanish flu patient number one and treated him and knew what he was facing and did all the right things and put into place all the practices that modern medicine knew at the time and was still helpless to stop it because math rather than science overwhelmed them. They tried to isolate the first sailors that were sick, but it was too late. They'd already passed the disease on to someone else who'd passed it on to someone else. And they couldn't corral all those infected people and isolate them fast enough. And once the multiplication began, all was lost. And so we think we're prepared, but they thought they were prepared too. So um, what is your next project? Do you have another book in the works? Uh, you know, I, I get asked that a lot. I have nosed around at a couple of things, but nothing has caught me yet. Um, I, I quite flippantly sometimes tell people, look, it took me seven years to do this. Um, the book is brand new. Give me seven weeks or seven months to catch my breath, and then I'll look for another one. <laughs> Understood. Well, it's been very interesting. And we've been speaking with Skip Desjardins, the author of September 1918, War, Plague, and the World Series. And Skip, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating interview, and we really appreciate you being on the show today. I really enjoyed it, Bob. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and thank you again for listening. Until next time, remember that the game is what matters, 